Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. The university is meant to be when you become a young adult. And, you know, we never get these years back. I think it's a shame that this rollout of vaccines is becoming embroiled in Brexit war. We'll forever be tarnished with, oh, well, yours doesn't count as much because you're the COVID generation. But of course, because the European Commission is so arrogant, no mistakes can be admitted to. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, it's another grim week in lockdown Britain. But amidst the gloom, there is light. Because the UK has now administered almost 7 million vaccines, well over 1 in 10 of our population. More than four-fifths of the over 80s have been jabbed at least once, with other vulnerable groups now being dosed as well. The UK's open, service-oriented, customer-facing economy has endured a high pandemic death rate. The tally of 100,000 fatalities from, with or linked to this virus is grim indeed. Mistakes have been made in both the formulation and execution of Britain's anti-Covid controls. But amidst the relentless drumbeat of TV news negativity, are we now seeing signs that lockdown could, sometime soon, be at least partially lifted? Co-pilot Pearson, do you see the green shoots of hope? Well, it's quite hard to see the green shoots of hope, isn't it, in this sort of historic weekly where we hit that really grim milestone of a of 100,000 deaths and we've got Matt Hancock saying a long, long, long way to go. I, I do think we're turning a corner, but I think at the moment all the attention is on this record death total and... There's so much sort of grief and sorrow attached to that. But something I wanted us to think about, really, was the way that the UK attributes the causes of death from COVID. And I had a look, Liam, and we do it very different from other countries. For example, for quite some time, other countries were not including their care home deaths in their running total. And as you know, our care home deaths and elsewhere are a huge huge percentage of the deaths. And I had a look at the ONS figures to the 15th of January, and we found the ONS, uh, Liam, haven't we? Probably the most reliable source. Absolutely fabulous statistical service we have. And 41.9% of COVID deaths are over 85. 32.6% are between 75 to 84 so that's 74, this is Alison's maths here, 74.5% of all COVID deaths are over the age of 75, which will give you, you know, a very kind of striking picture, something we know, but just confirmation of that. So what, I, what I'm asking you really is how many of these deaths, that, that of this 100,000 deaths, are COVID deaths and how many are within 28 days of a positive test for COVID, which we've heard anecdotally from listeners, haven't we? People going into hospital with kidney failure, with heart problems, and they are then attributed their deaths to COVID, regardless of the fact that they were clearly dying of something else. And I don't want to minimise it, but I do think we, as a country, we're getting landed with the worst total in Europe, but I think that other countries have been perhaps minimising their COVID deaths and maybe we've been maximising ours. What do you think, Liam? It's very difficult to know, isn't it? And I guess we should say as a preamble, we're not arguing the toss here because we disregard the grief of each one of those 
100,000 poor souls who have died, not for a second. They've died from or with COVID. I was careful in the introduction to say that Mm. because we don't know the extent to which COVID played a role in their death, a determining role. And again, this is not some balloon debate. This is not some political parlor game. We're trying in good faith to ascertain the impact of this virus in order to come up with the best possible policy response given that ongoing lockdown itself is costing lives, probably a lot more lives, according to a lot of academic work, in terms of economic collapse, in terms of mental health, in terms of NHS treatment for non-COVID conditions that's being foregone. We know that's happening. Cancer, strokes, heart disease, under all these main headings. So it's worth saying, that we don't know the extent to which this 100,000 grim tally is actually deaths that would have happened had the person not had COVID in some form. We know from endless emails we've had from pathologists and pathologists speaking out publicly as well, mm. that there is you know, many times COVID related is put on death certificates without a proper autopsy, mm. just because the patients seem to have some kind of respiratory condition. We also know, don't we, if you look back in the data as, as well, you've, you've, you've actually learned what Excel is. <laughs> you can't use it, but you know what it is. Joking aside, you have immersed yourself in data. Velma. Excuse me. Just, just, just don't, just don't use any words beginning with Q and I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> Except quince jelly. You're quite good with that. <laughs> And Mary Quant. Queen Bohemian Rhapsody, I can do. Yeah, and Queen B, don't you dare sub my copy. (laughs) Yeah, very good at that. Yeah, you have immersed yourself in data. I've been immersing myself in data. 100,000 deaths from or with or related to COVID is very grim indeed. If you look back... Though, if I may, without being shot down for being immoral, for looking at historic statistics, Mm. if you look back at this winter death peak from all causes, it is not particularly unusually high in a historic context. We're now, according to the ONS, just reported in 2020, the death rate from all causes across the UK was 10.3% per thousand. Yes, that is higher than previous recent years. But the death rate per 100,000 people has been rising since 2013. It was falling from the mid to late 70s to 2013. The low point in 2013 was 9.04. I'm literally looking at the website now. Mm. And the death rate we're currently at at the moment in 2020, 10 per three per thousand, is, by the way, exactly the same as it was in 2002. Was it really? And back in the 70s, 80s and 90s, it was much higher. I mean, in 1977, the Queen's Silver Jubilee, it peaked at 11.9 per thousand, peaked in modern times, of course, because in previous generations, death rates from disease and so on were much higher. So no one is denigrating this grim death toll, but we are saying to what extent, if we may, if we're allowed, we are saying that that 100,000 death rate is from, of, or with COVID. We don't know the extent to which COVID played a role in those tragic deaths. And we are saying that by historic standards, this is not a particularly high death rate. It just isn't. That's what the data shows. The reason we're talking like this is to try and bring some balance because, you know, I wrote this week about the, what I think of as the absolutely hysterical drumbeat of dread, which is coming out of the news every day, out of the TV news specifically. I talked about some special reports on the BBC by Clive Myrie. I watched them and I, I just, it was awful. It's awful to follow a body into a morgue. It's awful to have an overhead camera shot of somebody digging a grave and to pan around the cemetery, implying that everybody buried there has died of COVID. No. In the UK, 
160,000 deaths every year from cancer, 175,000 from heart and circulatory disease. That's one every three minutes. There are other causes of death. And they're going down, Liam. Why are they going down? Because COVID has overtaken them. And maybe some of those people who were dying of cancer and heart disease have been counted as COVID. And the reason this matters, the reason this debate matters is because we're seeing this week more and more stats coming. Urgent breast cancer referrals were down. Absolutely horrifying 32.6% last year compared to January to November 2019. And they will be many women who are mothers of young children. Uh, They haven't had their breast cancers picked up early. That could be a life and death matter. I mean, tragically. Life and death matters in my dread is obviously we've lost all these people now, but what's going to happen in a year, two years, three years, when the excess deaths from the lockdown really start coming through? And I think maybe then we'll see a pivot from some of these broadcasters because the penny will drop. You asked me about green shoots, Liam, at the beginning. I have heard from George this week. So George is... A source that you have within NHS England, we never disclose his or her identity. And George, for months now, has been risking his or her career mm. by relaying to you on request data from the NHS England dashboard, data which the general public would find very hard to access and to interpret. And George has been a hugely valuable resource on this podcast since the early days of Planet Normal, really, Mm. attempting to put into context what we're hearing from Public Health England, what we're hearing from SAGE, what we're hearing during those daily, sometimes daily government press conferences. And before you go to George Allison, could I just mention something else before you do? Mm -hmm. Because Professor Stephen Powis wrote about you, as you know, in The Telegraph recently. He wrote a letter, didn't he, Liam? Yeah, he's the National Medical Director of NHS England. And with your permission, I'm going to read parts of it out Mm -hmm. and then give you, and because I know you've put the arguments in the letter to George and George, Mm. who works for NHS England, a chance to respond. So if I may, Alison, Professor Stephen Powers wrote to the paper and said, Alison Pearson, uh, in an article you wrote in January the 20th, after our Planet Normal discussion, suggests it's wrong to claim a patient with COVID is admitted to hospital every 30 seconds. Last Saturday, says Professor Powers, using latest data, there were 3,569 new admissions and diagnoses with COVID, equal to slightly more than one new patient with COVID every 30 seconds. Ms Pearson writes that those diagnosed in hospitals should not be counted. Given that we know COVID-19 can go undetected, that suggestion would exclude thousands whose COVID was caught in the community, but who only tested positive upon admission. It's also wrong to imply, as she does that these new admissions would have caught COVID in hospital. Professor Stephen Powers, National Medical Director, NHS England, London SE1. Now, two things here. Your argument, the main thrust of your argument on Planet Normal last week, was that as well as measuring those admitted to hospital with COVID, we also need to measure those discharged from hospital (laughs) with COVID. And that's an argument, a key argument that Stephen Powers completely ignores in his response to you that many COVID cases are contracted in hospital. Mm. And those patients, whatever they're in hospital for, are then counted as COVID patients. Now, we know this. One-fifth of, this is a quote, one-fifth of all coronavirus infections are thought to be contracted, contracted, not just detected, in hospital. End of quote. Who said that, Professor Powers? Oh, it's a statement from Public Health England, the organisation that you helped to run. I did send Professor Powers' letter to George. So as you say, George works in in the heart of this thing he's talking about. And George said, Professor Powers has totally failed to address the point that you can't say a new COVID admission is happening every 30 seconds when two-thirds of those people are already in hospital, a significant proportion of whom may have been there for some time and contracted COVID in hospital. We produce a daily report on the number of patients diagnosed in hospital and how long it's been since they were admitted. 
Anyone testing positive over eight days, that's eight days later, is presumed to have acquired COVID in hospital. I I think that's quite clear, Liam. And I want to say a great thank you to George, who says to me that the net is closing in. They are trying to weed out anybody who is potentially guilty of sharing information. Information, co-pilot Halligan, which is paid for by us, by the British taxpayer, which people in the NHS, senior people in the NHS, don't wish to share with the general public who pay their wages. So George said the numbers have dropped very quickly over the past four days, both for inpatients diagnosed with COVID in the hospital and new admissions with COVID. Daily inpatients diagnosed have almost halved in less than two weeks from a peak of 2,800 daily diagnoses to 1,700 in the 24 hours to 8am on the 25th of January. New admissions with COVID are also falling. They peaked at 1,300 six days ago. That would have been when, last Wednesday, January the 20th, now down to below 1,000. Still a way to go, but trends are on a downward trajectory. And this is this is really valuable. The total number of COVID patients occupying hospital beds has fallen by 1,500 in the last week. There were almost 17,000 discharges Yay. of COVID patients last week compared to 8,000 new admissions. It looks promising in all regions. Either numbers are going down or the situation is certainly not getting any worse. So maybe, maybe things are looking up. And I, as I said, I wrote the the lead this week about the BBC coverage. We need to hear that things are getting better because we are getting emails from people who are talking about being at the end of their tether, young people, perhaps, you know, on the verge of of a nervous breakdown. I heard this morning from Claire, our GP, contact in London. Another person who... Shoulder is emblazoned with the order of merits of Planet Normal, Claire, our anonymous GP, along with Holly, our anonymous district nurse. That's right. And Claire said an email I just got. 75% of my surgery this morning was depression and anxiety related to COVID. 75%. I'm seeing an epidemic of depression and absolute despair, especially in young adults, as a result of the persistently gloomy statements by the government the media, refusal to give any indication of easing of restrictions, which is just destroying all hope or sense of reason for living. I fear suicides will rocket even higher. For these poor young people, their life has been on hold for a year. All they are allowed to do is eat, work and sleep. This lockdown has been much the worst because there is no end point. People die without hope. Claire. Okay. So we need to start seeing some change now. And I think we are seeing, aren't we, the Tory um, COVID recovery group. Mark Harper's been very vociferous this week, Liam. You like him. (laughs) You like a smooth Tory, don't you? The former chief whip that he is. The sort of Thunderbird haircut. My first love was Scott in Thunderbirds, as we've already discussed. And I like that sort of (laughs) clip on hair. Yes. Yes, my lady. Yes, my lady. lady. (laughs) So Boris Johnson at PMQs, literally as we're recording, I've got half an eye on it. Uh He says he will set out his, quote, roadmap for easing restrictions in the near future as vaccine rates go up. He told MPs that perpetual lockdown is not the answer, which will be music to the ears of many. And aren't we doing well as a country on vaccines? Of course, vaccines only work if much of the world gets vaccinated. But the UK has administered 10.3 doses per 100 of our population Mm. and four-fifths of the over 80s now. Not that you hear that much on the television news. And at the moment, at least, no EU nation comes close. Germany's managed around 2.1 doses per 100. The EU average is 1.9, and it's 1.7 in France. We're seeing a you know successive rioting in in the Netherlands. Mm. Hard, you know, usually one of the most laid back countries Absolutely. in the world. We're seeing a row developing in Spain about you know members of the medical and political elite who are jumping the queue to get vaccines. Of course, we've got a particular problem in France, which massively affects the UK, given the closeness of us geographically, culturally, commercially, Mm. where there's still a lot of anti-vax 
skepticism and no one wants to see you know, our neighbours suffer misfortune, particularly when the whole idea is to get vaccinated across the globe. But the EU, the Eurocrats in Brussels really have been lashing out, pointing the finger, pointing the finger at AstraZeneca, yeah. you know, a British company that's developed this astonishing vaccine with Oxford University, a vaccine that's cheap as chips, being distributed at cost and can be kept in a domestic fridge. That vaccine will be the workhorse for the world to vaccinate the world. But this is why we got out, Liam. This is why people's instinct to vote out was right, because Angela Merkel is basically uh, is entrusting Germany's rollout of the vaccine to Brussels. I mean, Pfizer and BioNTech, BioNTech is a German company from, you know, people, amazing Turkish people who came from Turkey and set up their business in Berlin. And Germany is now far from using its own its own people's vaccine they've brilliantly developed just to keep the EU together, is entrusting the, the rollout to Brussels, which is making a total pig's ear of it. But of course, because the European Commission is so arrogant, no mistakes can be admitted to. It's got to be blamed on other people, including the Brits, apparently. So it's it's all very unseemly, isn't it? The arguments against Brexit, Alison, are, are, are complex, multifaceted. You, you and I, of course, both voted to leave. I think it's a shame that this massively important rollout of vaccines is becoming embroiled in Brexit war, as Sir Christopher Mayer said so yes. uh, presciently last week. All I hope is that we can avoid going down the vortex of some vaccine slash trade war as the political pressure cranks up. The reality is, though, the stark commercial reality is that without massive commercial and state investment from both the UK and the US, by the way, for all the mistakes both those countries have made during this pandemic, without our commercial investment, without our government moving quickly in this case, the main vaccines that are going to bail out most of the Western world wouldn't exist. Motherhood. It's a seriously full-on job. Late nights, early mornings, a difficult client. Hi, I'm Claire Newell. I'm the investigations editor at The Telegraph. I've spent my career flying around the world investigating corruption. Last year, my latest adventure was having our baby boy. And as I started to emerge from all the sleep deprivation, I started to question was I going to be able to continue my career while looking after our boy? To find out, I made a podcast called The Juggling Act. I'll be interviewing politicians, chief execs, celebs to ask them how having a baby has affected their careers, their relationships and their lives. Yes. To find the show, search for The Juggling Act from wherever you normally find your podcasts and click subscribe. Now, we've had some great guests on Planet Normal, of course, from top politicians to top scientists, from authors to singers and celebrity chefs. Last week's stirway was Sir Christopher Mayer, our former ambassador to Washington. The diplomat, then Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott, famously called the red-socked fop. <laughs> and judging by your emails, listeners certainly enjoyed our chat with Sir Socks himself. But some of our most interesting and striking guests have been ordinary listeners – planet normal fans who've written in and we've then invited on you can hear them on our archive from holly the district nurse claire the gp to brian a deep sea fisherman from Fraserburgh. and this week allison you've invited on another avid planet normal listener Yes, Liam. We had uh, a few weeks back, you read out a terrifically articulate email from Lucy, a geophysics student at Durham University. And Lucy was outlining absolutely brilliantly what it's meant to be a university student during lockdown. They've tended to be very overlooked, I think, except for getting blamed for you know, being horrible mass spreaders of infection. And overzealous consumers of avocado. <laughs> Oh, everything wrong. Everything I tell you wrong. what, we're buying so many avocados in my house. I've got three <laughs> wonderful kids, all of the generation that are dubbed snowflake. Mm. God, my kids aren't snowflakes. 
at all, but they do eat a lot of avocado. I didn't think you'd get a snowflake halogen. <laughs> anyway, I thought it would be really interesting for us to hear what Lucy had to say. And I began by asking her whether she feels that university students have been heard during this pandemic. I think we are definitely some of the most forgotten people during this lockdown. Well, not just this lockdown, but this entire period. Just even down to the fact that quite often when Boris or ministers are, are giving speeches um, about new restrictions and stuff, they don't even mention the word university. And I just think that just highlights how much we're just put at the back of back of minds, you know, out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> you wrote us a great email and you said that you described yourselves as the forgotten people of the pandemic, expected to comply with rules that frankly destroy our education and mental health, then blamed for outbreaks and guilt trip that it is our fault that our grandparents' generation are dying. Can, can you tell Planet Normal listeners how this has affected you personally? You're at Durham, you're reading geophysics. So what's it been like this year? What what was the sort of trajectory of the, of the rules being imposed on you? Yeah, so obviously back last March, we all got sent home understandably so at the time you know people were really uncertain about what was going to happen so obviously you went home stayed at home through that whole first lockdown yes and it was just it was really really tough I was meant to have a field trip um, which is a big part of my degree and that was scrapped and moved on to Google Earth in a matter of weeks. <laughs> yes, tell everyone about that because you were you were supposed to be going to the Lake District weren't you? Yes um, we were meant to be going to Lakes and it, like I say, we were then screen sharing Google Earth on Zoom and being shown the paths we would have walked down if we were there. <laughs> um, so that was that was tough and it was a big adjustment. And, you know, I think a lot of uni students see their time at home as a time to relax and, mm. and be calm mm. and not have to worry about work. And then suddenly it's like these two worlds colliding where you've still got for me, like three, four, five hours of contact time a day alongside parents working from home and just it's just the the two things didn't quite align. And then obviously summer was I look back last summer was almost fond memories now yes, compared, compared to, now. to yeah. where we are now. I was able to to return and, and sit some of my exams here. So I was really struggling to work from home. And even then the online exams, you know, with as students expected to suddenly be able to perform to a similarly high level in online exams when our entire exam training since we were in high school has been for in-person prove yourself in an hour or two hours not 48 hour online seemingly endless exams and then going into September October returning to uni there was obviously a lot of bad press around students returning and spreading the virus around mm, and mm. and it's just so it's just cruel you know we just want to do what what we're meant to be doing at this age um which is getting a really great education and, and having a good time while doing it and it just felt like we were endlessly being told off <laughs> frankly my uni has been quite quite proactive. Yes, you said to me you thought Durham had done its best, really. Yeah, really, throughout. And to the point where, you know, at the start of my first term here, I was able to run netball practices. We had choir. The lectures, that they had been made very COVID-secure, mm -hmm. hadn't they? You were, you were masked, mm -hmm. actually, were you? So everything had been pre-recorded as well so if you were either you know in a different country time zone wherever you were in the world you could watch those lectures but then they were also delivering them in person and so they at least had that option you know if you felt safe and you were willing to assess that risk and, and you know go and were willing to comply with the rules sit there in your mask you could and you could still try and make the most of your education the second lockdown, you know, I still had those lectures to go to. I I was going still three times, two, three times a week in. And it really, it really helped me get through that. And I sit here now and universities are shut. And I'm like, why? Like, we're in exactly the same position as we were back then in terms of the student body. In fact, potentially even 
perhaps even safer for students because so many of us caught the virus the first time around that it just I just don't understand like why we are not able to return right now it doesn't seem to make much sense does it because as you say the figures suggest that lots of you got it very quickly now you didn't have any trouble with the covid at all did you uh, well i caught covid in week one of my term so when i did return i did catch covid but i was lucky that i really wasn't too badly affected by it in fact none of my housemates were at all bad, bad, badly affected and you know within three four days and dosing up on paracetamol and, and lying in bed which wasn't too different from the freshers week lifestyle at that time you know <laughs> pretty much pretty much like a standard hangover really <laughs> exactly exactly so mm. and I think that just proves that for young people it just I know there's extreme cases but you've you've got to surely make decisions for the the best of the majority we know now unlike in the spring we know now that that covid poses a lethal threat really only to people over the age of 65 and the average age of death is 82.4 do you think it's fair that your generation has had their lives put on hold for a year it looks like it's going to be a year at least for something which mainly harms your grandparents generation I also wonder what your grandparents would think about you guys having to go through this for them Mm, what do you think yeah I mean I I could sit here and talk about missed lectures and and loss of experience and all those things but it's the other tolls that it has on students and, and people our age as well just from personal experience I've felt some of the lowest and most stressed ever in my life this year and I'm not typically someone that that gets to that point I reached a point in May when I was facing online exams and waking up every day to get another email with something else cancelled and I honestly like didn't get out of bed for like a whole day and my mum and dad was well you know obviously worried and and I got other friends a friend that was hospitalized with what was then put down to to stress induced symptoms goodness and yeah. and things like that and it's just it it's it's easy to just just talk about it and think that like oh it doesn't affect that many people but it, it really really does and you know we never get these years back university is meant to be when you become a young adult you know you learn skills and have experiences and meet friends that stay with you for your whole life and we can't ever get that back. We heard a lot about students being told, oh, come back, you can have a full university experience. Do you think that that was missold to young people? No, they they really, really did try. They really did try, especially at Durham. And I'm involved in, in running a few clubs and societies and, and we were told pre-Christmas, be prepared for a lot more interaction on campus like next term they've set up a a mass testing like these lateral flow test mass testing sites Mm. and the whole plan was everyone goes for a test once a week that's marked against your uni username and then Mm -hmm. using that you'd be able to like book things like the library and be allowed to attend extracurricular and I just thought that's that's just perfectly encapsulates what we should be doing right now and then when they announced this third lockdown and everything was shut, I was like, but, but why? Like They've put the things in place to make it work, you know, treating the university body, all its students as like one big, almost like a, a city in itself when they had that mass testing in Liverpool. And it that allowed them to stay in a lower tier. And it was the same thing as like, surely surely they've put in so much time and effort and money to do this they should be rewarded by allowing to it, stuff to go ahead but you know they just get painted with the same brush as everywhere else you're studying geophysics with a specialism in volcanology <laughs> forsooth volcanoes i'm so impressed we was talking in a slightly jokey way about the lake district field trip being cancelled but actually this is your serious academic work that you need to do and I know you want to go on and do a do a master's I mean how limiting is it for your academic career to not be able to do lab or field work I mean obviously people are trying wherever they can to find replacements but they're just 
some things, especially in science uh, or more practical arts, like a lot of friends that do music and things like that, or drama, there's just no replacement. And I, I think about maybe things like starting a chemistry degree and you've got A-level students yeah. arriving on day one that will never have done a, a titration, which is like a classic A-level experiment mm. that you, you perfect to infinite degrees. It, it just seems so wrong. And then at the next level, you have university degrees that have certain specific hours of lab time or or field experience that allow you to, to become accredited, which obviously then helps with careers and, and research and things like that. And it just either the standards are going to drop and then we'll forever be tarnished with, oh, well, yours doesn't count as much because you're the COVID generation. Or you'll end up with people unable to get jobs because they're not at the skill level required. You mentioned to me that there was some talk about with your dissertation about someone else doing the lab work. I mean, how is that supposed to work? Yeah, I mean, I'm so grateful to the people that are doing that for me. And we've actually... In the last few weeks, since I actually sent my first email, I had some amazing results there. Just explain to us how, are you almost dictating to them on a screen, please do this, please do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. So a lot of the technical advice comes from them anyway. And then I basically have to describe to them what we'd like to happen. And then hopefully, fingers crossed, they go away and do it. But we've faced even more restrictions with that now to the point where lecturers and professors can't even access the labs to do lab work which just baffles me because surely it's their place of work. Obviously you're all paying full fees for this year that's 9,250 tuition plus full rent for a much diminished student life and I know there have been rent strikes at a couple of universities but your generation seems to have been quite accepting and passive. What's your take Lucy on the financial aspect of this? Do you think you deserve a rebate? I always think it's a bit crass potentially to make it always all about money. I it, I felt like there was a point over the summer where if you kicked up enough of a fuss on Twitter the then the government would come and give you a, a nice bit of money. <laughs> Obviously, it isn't the same kind of degree that you get when you're in person, yet we are still paying the same amount. I do think for me, I, as a science student, still get a lot of contact hours. So I can more easily justify that debt for the future. But for a lot of art students, I mean, yeah, it's... It's mad, to be honest. And the rent strikes, yes, they work for a very small percentage of people because they kind of only work if you if you live in big private accommodation owned by a big company or in university-owned buildings, whereas a very, very large proportion of students live in private rentals. I'd feel bad demanding like a rent refund because then it's, it's my landlord that takes the loss and mm, takes the cut mm. and it just is like an endless cycle of someone's got to lose somewhere along it. When you wrote to us you said each time the government comes out with some more science and you put science in many inverted commas I get more and more embarrassed to be a scientist. What did you mean by that? As scientists we assess things as constantly evolving so that's why you know obviously back last March when we were being told wild numbers like 5% death rates and, and things like that. You have to act on what you're being told in that moment. But as things progress, you collect data. And you know we all know nowadays how valuable data is. And you should be using that to improve predictions constantly, constantly. And I just think they seem to be ignoring the data that's right in front of them. You've actually had COVID. Your three grandparents have recently had the vaccine and and you said, why can I not be counted as someone who's had the vaccine and see my grandparents? What do you think's going on when the government seems to discount the idea, in fact, the scientific principle that people who've had COVID 
will almost certainly have a very good degree of immunity. I mean, I wish I knew. I wish I wish I knew how they can try and justify this. If if someone has had coronavirus and they've therefore built up some natural immunity, surely they can be treated in the same way as someone that's had a vaccine. This week we're being told even if you've had the vaccine, you still have to abide by loads of all the social distancing rules and and because you might still have coronavirus and might still pass it on. And then I'm just sat here like, well, there is never a way out then. If, If that's genuinely what we're being told, there is no way out. And that is just, I just find that terrifying. Liam and I are supporters of the Great Barrington Declaration. I know you listen to Planet Normal, you'll probably have heard Professor Shanetra Gupta, one of the world's leading epidemiologists, he's a signatory to the Great Barrington Declaration. And it, and it advocates an age-stratified approach to the pandemic. As a young scientist, do, do you see any sense in that approach? Definitely. I mean, that just should be the way that we're going about this now. It's pretty clear by third time lucky that lockdowns have a very, very minimal effect on any of this. A certain number of people are going to catch coronavirus. And by having lockdowns, we're just kind of delaying the amount of time that that's going to go on for. If we were able to shield those that are vulnerable and shield those that are are most at risk, I just don't see why the rest of us shouldn't be able to return to normal life. Your generation are often referred to as snowflakes for for the tremulous sensitivity and inability to deal with tough challenges. What do you think of that nickname? And do you think that this COVID year will have, you know, have as a byproduct maybe helped some people develop more determination and resilience? Or do you think that the overall effect will be deleterious? I mean, obviously, it's like case by case basis. But I think there's term snowflake I mean there's there's kind of two sides to it for me there's people that like to make a fuss about everything all the time and then there's some people that genuinely make a fuss when it when it needs to a fuss needs to be made and I think at the moment a fuss definitely needs to be made and the most worrying thing is that so many young people don't make that fuss you know we're told don't pressure the NHS don't worry about this and you know only essential things and and I know a lot of young people just bottle stuff up you don't want to burden someone else with what you're struggling with yourself because everyone is struggling at the moment and then it becomes so much more damaging like that and I think that's one of the big problems at the moment. On Planet Normal we sometimes grant you a wish to have a few words with the Prime Minister if you if you could have five minutes with Boris Lucy what what would you say to him now on behalf of students? I tell him to try and cast his mind back to his time at uni because I'm sure it defines who he has become as a person. I'm sure it's he's still got friends that he's had there for life. He was able to do things that that have shaped his future career and there's a whole generation now with how long this is going on that are just not having that and you know we're the future scientists the future politicians the future epidemiologists of of yes the world you know and we're sat here just being forgotten so i'd I'd tell him to cast his mind back and and really seriously rethink universities because it's such a manageable situation it just needs a bit more thought i was delighted to hear that the um Multiple generations of your family are Planet Normal (laughs) listeners. (laughs) I just want to say to mum and dad, Rowena and Pete, that I think you have produced a most excellent young human. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with Planet Normal. We're very enlightened and you didn't sound even vaguely snowflakey (laughs) to me. In fact, you sounded sounded like a bit of a rock. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, thanks for giving me a voice on behalf of students as well. Sign her up, Alison. We've got another co-pilot right there. What a remarkably impressive young woman. Oh, isn't she terrific? And, you know, really, I mean, much more articulate than your average MP, isn't she? I than mean- your average Planet Normal presenter. <laughs> hey, I, I know I know you're trying to get me off the rocket. She's made such marvellous points, hasn't she? Her university set up all the lateral flow tests. They 
could have the test negative, then they could, you know, they could operate with relative freedom. Why? Why are they shut? Why are her lecturers not allowed to go in when it's their place of work? On and on, all these saying, why is the government not making decisions for the benefit of the majority? Why can't she see her grandparents when she's had the had the virus and enjoys immunity? I mean, so terrific to hear a young scientist really pushing back at SAGE and these so-called experts. And just to say, Liam, that Lucy was the opposite of complaining or whining. You can hear how mature and resolved she is. But this is having a really serious effect. She wants to go and do a master's. She wants to have a very, very great postgraduate career. She's going to work in the oil industry with her geophysics degree. And the lack of ability to actually carry out practically her work will impact her qualifications. But I came away being very, very, very cheered. I suggested that I'd like her to become my daughter-in-law, but she'd have to take on my arts graduate useless son. So she, <laughs> she didn't say no. She didn't say no. So uh, She's obviously a smart cookie. I didn't even know what volcanology was. I thought it was a study of Mr Spock or something. I think what's really difficult here is that the government, the prime minister... They are so scared of saying something that will happen, the opening of universities, the opening of schools, and then it not happening. Yeah, yeah. Literally, as we've been recording, the Prime Minister's confirmed schools cannot reopen, he says, after the February half term. There'll be a plan to reopen schools that was outlined in the week beginning, February the 22nd, and schools will re- reopen first, hopefully, on Monday, March the 8th. Well... We will see, won't we? What we do know is that there's growing political pressure for some aspects of lockdown to be eased. And I don't know about you, Alison, we take a lot of brickbats on social media and from others for scrutinising this data, for indicating that maybe there are other ways to deal with this as opposed to full across the board national lockdown. And when I do that, the people who are most on my mind are the young people, people like Lucy and good honour. listener emails a selection of the messages that you have sent to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk do keep sending your wonderful moving informative messages to us liam and i really do love hearing from you and of course we rip off all the content and pretend it's our own ideas don't say that don't say that (laughs) it's true you help keep me sane is something so many of you say when you write to us but it works the other way too it's Planet Normal listeners who are helping to keep Velma and Shaggy sane. Um, and <laughs> For one moment, I thought we'd got through without you doing that noise. They love it. Well, they I love don't it. Know. Maybe your mother. I don't know. Who knows who likes it? Um, but this is from Bill. I am a professor of surgery and I have many times been physically frightened by the BBC 10 o'clock news. And we have to pay for that ghoulish rubbish. In case you and Liam feel like making something out of it, I attach the ONS chart for causes of death for December. Note that we have made amazing advances compared to the last five years in reducing the top five causes of death, which have all gone down. I ask, why have they stopped giving us the predisposing causes and more recently, even the ages of the dying? Only emotive anecdotes about the odd younger people who are dying. The true deaths caused by COVID will end up being about a half of the 28-day positive test deaths, I guess. Please pursue the planet normal theme and carry the fight against the broadcast media. They are all much the same, though the Beeb is definitely the worst. Thanks for that, Bill. This is from Olivia. Thank you, Planet Normal, and please don't stop what you're doing. I'm so sorry you're being subjected to abuse on social media, along with many others who speak sense. Shanetra Gupta, Lord Sumption, the list goes on. You're brave and we are enormously grateful. This, for me, is one of the most depressing elements of this whole debacle. The way anyone daring to question the narrative is abused with the most appalling language. The likes of Piers Morgan should be utterly ashamed. I'm no conspiracy theorist. I'm by no means anti-vaccination. My kids are entirely up to date with their jabs. But it's increasingly difficult not to believe there's now significant malign opportunism at play, regardless of how or where this virus started, not least among mainstream broadcasters, says Olivia. Has any other nation limited its cancer treatment as we have throughout this virus? We seem to be the only ones blinkered to the point of utter stupidity. 
Both my boys, 11 and 8, were in tears this week about not being in school and seeing their friends. How can the government justify sacrificing our young in this way? Thank you both so much, and please don't stop. Best wishes, Olivia. Oh, what a great email. Liam, this week in The Telegraph, I did a funny piece because a very good friend of mine said she was quite looking forward to her eye surgery next week because at least it would get her out of the house. (laughs) And I thought how low our expectations of sunk of life that we positively relish taking the dog to the vet to get its anal gland squeezed because it's a bit like, you know, it's the closest closest we're going to come to dinner at Claridge's at the moment. Anyway, John picked up this theme which Planet Normal listeners might like to join in with. We live just north of Peterborough. My wife recently had her letter from the NHS offering a vaccine at either Stevenage or Flitwick, both involving round trips of about 100 miles. Hooray! Although the importance of the vaccine was not totally lost on us, the first thought was, great, a legal day out. We returned from our day out to find my letter on the doormat, so off to Stevenage again. We have two more outings for vaccines booked in April for the second dose. Naturally, such a long journey journey necessitates a toilet stop, which led to a coffee in Starbucks at Bulldog Services. Really pushing the boat out. (laughs) This is Bulldog Services. Bulldog Services. Then we had to call a Tesco's at Hampton for some essentials. Are you sharing our excitement, Alison and Liam? If someone had suggested last January that a trip to Stevenage for a jab would be a major highlight of the year, thank heavens for PH. (laughs) No, not Public Health, Pearson and Halligan. Thanks so much for that, John. I love that column. Dental hygienist. Oh, I can't wait. Seeing the shroppers for an ingrown toenail. Practically a holiday. And listeners can read that full column in the Telegraph, of course. Do send your suggestions for what bizarre things have become exotic highlights. Rosie says, we now put entries in the diary for dog worming and cat flea pills just to fill up the pages. <laughs> God. Hashtag lockdown thrills. <laughs> and here's one from Jaunty, an orthodontist. It's not a phrase I'd ever thought I'd use on Planet Normal. Mm. Dear Alison and Liam, thanks so much for the perfect antidote you provide to the daily gloom. I look forward to Thursdays and your hilarious banter as much as I value the important job you do deconstructing and putting into perspective much of the misleading and scaremongering government statistics. I'm an orthodontist and lucky enough to have been able to work almost normally since June. But I feel so sorry for other businesses that are prevented from working at this time and also a degree of guilt. How is it that I'm allowed to work 30 centimetres from a mouth with a mask and visor, Mm. and yet the same mask and visor seem to not provide enough protection for other face-to-face professions, like hairdressers, for example, some of whom are my patients. I feel great sorrow about the huge death toll, but also feel for all those people with businesses closed facing uncertain futures, and I wish them all the very best for a more certain future. Thank you, John C., and who would dare, Alison, to be orthogonal to the orthodontist? <laughs> this is from Sarah. I am in my late 30s and I have an elderly acquaintance who has lost their life to COVID. I don't for a moment underestimate its potential impact on the most vulnerable in our society. But I have also watched as my mother's eye operation needed to prevent her permanently losing her eyesight has been cancelled three times since last March with no future date on the horizon and her sight rapidly deteriorating. As one of my close friends who lives alone has become increasingly depressed and lonely, often phoning me late at night in floods of tears, saying she doesn't see the point of going on. As a former neighbour has lost his job as a highly trained restaurant chef, had to give up his own rented home and move back into his parents' spare room, desperately applying for any random job he can find. I wonder how it is seemingly acceptable for the government to spend billions on a track and trace system that doesn't work and take almost a year to restrict incoming travel from badly affected countries, but then lecture us on our behaviour as if me possibly going out for two walks a day is the main reason we are in the situation we're in. I listened to the latest government adverts about how bending the rules means people will die and feel furious at the way in which fear is being used to keep us all in check. Yes, the lives of our elderly and vulnerable people matter and they should be protected. But my life matters too. My mother matters. My desperately lonely friend matters. My unemployed chef neighbour matters. 
oh, that a more balanced and representative view takes hold of our decision makers sometime soon. If either you or Liam have a chance to take the reins, rest assured, you have my vote. Not, I'm not sure the present situation could be improved by Halligan and me running the country. But, I don't uh, know. I think we'd do a fine job. <laughs> Very nice thought, Sarah. Thank you for that lovely email. Really put it beautifully. I've left this one to the end and Planet Normal Regulars may be a bit shocked by this. So if you do listen to this podcast standing up, you may want to sit down. I'm trying to be a bit jokey, but it won't work because when Alison and I read this email, it hit us hard. Now, Planet Normal citizens will know all about the story of Robert and Josephine, teenage sweethearts now in their 80s, united by shared decades of married life. Robert wrote to Planet Normal last summer, soon after our podcast launched, asking for our help mm. in his fight to visit Josephine in her care home she unfortunately suffers from dementia and extreme loneliness. We sprung into action, highlighting the case and the issue of care homes visits more generally. Robert visited us on Planet Normal, appearing as co-pilot Pearson's guest. And Alison, then you wrote a very powerful open letter, which The Telegraph published to Helen Watley, the Minister for Social mm -hmm. Care. Suddenly, Robert started getting replies to his letters. Mm -hmm. And finally, government policy was tweaked the rules made slightly less draconian so Robert and Josephine and countless other separated elderly couples were allowed to see each other once more. So here goes Robert's email to Planet Normal, dated last Friday. I know you'd want to know that my beautiful Josephine, love of my life, died this morning at 7.30. I'm with her now, but too late to say farewell. So near and yet so far with love from Robert Styler. Now, later that same day, Alison, mm -hmm. you replied to him. I did. And Robert then wrote again. I've shed many tears today, he wrote, none less than when I read your very moving email this evening, Alison. It's an occasion for great sadness, as she was the most powerful element in our family. She will be missed more than words can express. Importantly, though, is the fact that we have had a long and happy life together, blessed with a loving family. What can be more important than that? Our memories of Josephine are all positive and precious, and sadly, only a few members of the family and close friends, of course, will be at the funeral. We'll celebrate Joe's life at home in the summer with everyone when we're free from the prison which has dominated our lives this past year. When I reflect on this painful journey, I'm overwhelmed by the wealth of love that exists in the world. How sad is it that much is submerged by the fear and dread which permeates so much of society caused by a single virus? For the future, I can only hope that the thousands still in the position Josephine and I were in, once all the care home staff and residents have been vaccinated, the barriers for families to visit their loved ones will be lifted and no one else will suffer the heartbreak which has so deeply scarred our family. We cannot end this story here. Please visit us for Joe's memorial in the summer and bring the whole Planet Normal crew with you. Ever your friend, Robert. Thank you for reading that. I don't think I could have managed it. So what can we say? He asked me if they had made a difference. Yes, you absolutely, you and Joe made a difference and... We've heard from the Rights for Residents campaign, uh, how influential Robert's speaking out so beautifully about his wife. We have seen a relaxation in some of the very draconian, cruel rules that stopped Robert seeing Joe for over nine months. And Liam, you'll remember that before Christmas, they had a lovely dinner and evening together in the home and they had their favourite food, they had ice cream. That would not have happened without Planet Normal, Alison, and particularly without you and your advocacy of them. And that's not what's important, but you should take some pride in that because it's true. But Robert never stopped fighting for her. He never stopped thinking that her dignity, her need to have human contact was important. And there have been many, many hundreds of thousands of relatives like Robert who have been fighting. And we should remember, Liam, that although the government has relaxed the guidance, certain care home groups are choosing to ignore that guidance, which I think is just wicked, really. 
But they made a huge impact on us and everyone, I think all Planet Normal listeners, that we were moved by the story, the tenacity of their love, even into old age. And he said that she recognised him. She was delighted to see him. He said she was babbling a bit, didn't always make sense, but they had a laugh. And I think that that, as he said, Robert said in his email, that the world is full of love. And this virus has cruelly separated many people. And I'm very glad they had that that lovely last meeting. And, and Josephina survived by her sons and her beautiful grandchildren. And I my religious faith has has fluctuated, Liam. I was a Sunday school teacher when I was a teenager, but my religious faith has fluctuated. But the thing I know is that the love never dies because Josephine lives in her children and the grandchildren, and so she never dies because she um, she and Robert are are in them. And I hope that you and I will have a charabang trip down to Evesham in the summer to raise a glass to Josephine. And I hope that all the people like her and Robert are free then to live full, loving, loving lives. And um, we thank them for bringing light and, and joy, actually, into, into, into Planet Normal. Let's leave it there until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.